You're listening to the PhD Addicted to Research podcast. My name is Chloe Burke and I'm a PhD student in psychology at the University of Bath and I will be hosting this episode today. This pod will be hearing about the work that's been carried out by researchers in the addictions field during the pandemic, who, like many of us, have faced changes and adaptations to their work. This episode contains a series of short segments with different researchers introducing their work, how they've responded to changing circumstances and research priorities, as well as discussing the opportunities and challenges that arose out of conducting research during COVID. This is your chance to sit back and enjoy hearing about some of the fantastic research that's been going on in the addictions field, as well as the experiences of the researchers conducting it. So, without further ado, and using the words of the renowned Professor Chris Whitty, next slide, please. We've got four segments for you today, each covering really different topic areas within addictions research. Up first is Dr. Jenny Scott, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology at the University of Bath. Jenny's research explored how the pandemic affected people in rural areas who take opiate substitutes, and this research was a collaboration with the University of Bristol and also Turning Point Services. So a brief introduction to the research we did in COVID. I, um, I was involved in a study with the University of Bristol looking at how people who inject drugs have coped during the pandemic. And that got me thinking about how people in other areas may have coped. My clinical practice is in a rural drug and alcohol service in Wiltshire. And I was interested to know if the findings we were getting in Bristol would be the same or different for the people that were in rural areas. In particular, I was interested in Um, how people had coped with the changes to their prescribed medication because Public Health England asked for people where possible to have weekly or fortnightly take-home quantities of opiate substitution therapy. So I was interested to understand how people had coped with that and also the wider context of how they cope with changes to drug and alcohol treatment services during the pandemic. So how I went about doing my research and what we found, um, we did telephone interviews. Um, so it was a qualitative study. We uh, spoke to people on the telephone and tried to adapt our normal qualitative interviewing style for a phone. We uh, recruited them through the uh, drug and alcohol services in three rural areas, so in Wiltshire, in Somerset and in Suffolk, because those three rural areas are all under the umbrella of the organisation where I have my clinical work. And what did we find? We found, I suppose we found a mixture of things, some of which were very similar to what we found in Bristol and some which which wasn't. We found that by and large, people have really welcomed the changes in the pandemic, particularly the changes to the prescribed medication. Um, We found that drug and alcohol services, people's lives don't revolve around them and the hoops, as they call it, and the challenges of having to to make appointments, to attend appointments, to attend um, groups um, and, and to engage sometimes quite frequently 
have, have been difficult, particularly in rural areas, and people welcomed the space that, that they'd been given. They welcomed having contact uh, online and on the phone. They talked of how um, in rural locations that was much easier to attend than perhaps having to rely on public transport. We found that by and large people have coped with the medication, although there were some exceptions and some people who would found it more difficult to have larger quantities at home. We found um, people were generally quite isolated in the pandemic. Their uh, people, particularly those with coexisting mental health problems, often talked of, of uh, a worsening of depression. Um, although, interestingly, people with anxiety often talked of improved symptoms because they didn't have to leave the house, they didn't have to interact with others, they didn't have to physically attend appointments and they were spending more time at home and alone. Now whether that's a good or a bad thing obviously depends where you're coming from but the actual interviewees did see that as a positive. They felt that that was good for them because they could navigate and control better the things that made the, the mental health worse. We also found that although there's been the everyone in strategy to get people into accommodation, that rural homelessness and, and that still was an issue for some and for some people they hadn't qualified or what they'd been offered was just miles and miles and miles away from from what what support structures they, they had in place and they didn't want to, for example, um leave the the locality where the children were being looked after by by another family member or where they had um, a supportive sibling for example so quite a mixed bag okay so our experiences of conducting this research during the pandemic the actual telephone interviewing was remarkably straightforward to adapt i would say from our usual face-to-face interviewing. We found building a rapport and and going through the the interview schedule and listening and talking with people, remarkably similar. Lack of perhaps body language and non-verbal cues is always a restriction. The challenge came around the actual recruitment because ordinarily we would agree with the the sort of governance um, and and approvals people and the head offices of drug and alcohol services that we can recruit. And then we would go physically to the services and meet the staff in a, you know, join a team meeting, explain what we want to do, explain how we need their help. And often recruitment's very opportunistic. So we would agree times where um, the researchers would go and, and sit in the waiting room and sort of capture, if for want of a better word, people as they as they came in and out. Whereas for this study, we had to rely on gatekeepers, and those gatekeepers were the the drugs workers, the recovery workers, and obviously they've been under huge pressures during the pandemic as well. They've had to adapt to new ways of working. They've not been able to deliver the same services and what they have been delivering has been in a different format, a different style. Um, and, and many, many, most, the majority of them that are rec- were recruiting for us have never met us, 
didn't know anything about us. And that lack of rapport, that lack of relationship building has made the recruitment very slow. In terms of a sort of final thoughts, what has been hugely beneficial to me personally is I've been able to work both on this study I've described to you, my own study, and the other study I mentioned with people that I've never worked before. And I think that online interactions have made that really easy and possible. So we've actually been able to have weekly team meetings on, you know, Zoom or Microsoft Teams and really kind of interact as researchers with each other really closely. And that's that's been a real positive. You know, I think pre-COVID, um, the opportunities for such sort of rapid research probably probably weren't there. But being able to sit down and just put the headset on and join the meeting and, and work together both on the data collection, the analysis and the, the synthesis and the publication. It's, for me, it's been a, a really supportive and um, collaborative way to work. Our next segment is with Marie Jameson, a PhD researcher based in the Substance Use and Associated Behaviours Research Group at Manchester Metropolitan University. Marie's work investigates kinship care and parental substance misuse, and during this segment, she introduces us to the research area and also discusses the challenges that COVID has introduced to her planned studies. So a brief introduction to my research is that it is looking at kinship care and parental substance use, um, and by that I mean um, for children who can't safely live with their parents, and one of the primary reasons for that being um, parental drug or alcohol misuse, um, and where rather than becoming looked after by the state or becoming into care, they're able to live with wider family members or friends, um, and that tends to be grandparents, older siblings, aunts, uncles, neighbours, friends, anything like that. Um, and I'm particularly interested in these kind of families' experiences of support services, because kinship, informal kinship families are not entitled to statutory support in the same way that foster carers are, um, but are much more typically older, more likely to have multiple caring roles, um, to experience ill health and to kind of live in deprivation or poverty is much more common in kinship families than in foster families. Um, so I'm looking to take a kind of a systemic, a systemic approach to the research. Um, so I'm interviewing kinship carers, children living in kinship care, social workers and substance use workers to try to better understand what the experiences of support services are like. Uh, the research was definitely affected by COVID. Um, we had a number of delays in kind of getting the data collection kind of started due to kind of funding issues and which services ha were able to support kinship families at the time. Um, but in March 2020, um, I had all of my interviews booked in to uh, speak to kinship families face to face about their experiences. Um, and lockdown led to all of that having to be cancelled and many months of kind of looking through the ethics procedures and trying to understand what the national lockdown measures looked like and what that meant for kind of kinship research or for or all of us were looking at what that meant for our research situations. I did look at using online methods um, and that was one of the things that our university really encouraged us to do and didn't need separate ethics approval. But what I found was that actually kinship families didn't really want to use online methods. And when I've explored that a bit further, really it wasn't very appropriate in a lot of situations the online methods require you to have access to technology and many older kinship families didn't have access to laptops and internet and things like that. Also, if they did, weren't very confident in using using those kind of technologies. And also, 
it was about having that space to take part in that research project. A lot of the questions to ask kinship carers in particular are very sensitive and it wouldn't be appropriate for the children to be around during those. Yet it was homeschooling and there was no support bubbles and the children were home and there was therefore no kind of space to do that. But I felt really strongly about not changing my research questions. Um, I didn't want to cut out kind of the family experiences because for me, that's the most crucial element of this research. And I worried that if I did, um, potentially what is already quite a marginalised group would be kind of marginalised further by being denied to take part in research. Um, so one of the things I was kind of fortunate enough to do, I suppose, was to reduce my PhD down to part time hours to extend the amount of time I have to do the research. Um, and because I'm kind of a social worker, I was able to kind of pick up some more hours on the front line to kind of make things work. I suppose. I think, like lots of people that I've spoken to, it's been quite a challenge. Um, you know, we, we talk about PhD research being quite an isolating experience before COVID, um, and we're kind of making that worse through the lockdowns. I suppose it's all the uncertainty, um, and it's the uncertainty that, that, that kind of the families are living through, and kind of from the frontline perspective, I can see how difficult it has been for services, such as work and offer support to families. Um, and all of that uncertainty is just make it really difficult for, for everybody, really. For this next segment, I'd like to introduce Katie Penfold, who is a PhD researcher based at the University of Surrey. Katie's research focuses on minimising gambling-related harms, and during COVID, she set up a study to explore people's experiences of attending Gamblers Anonymous online. So a uh, brief introduction to my research. Um, basically, my, my research focuses on Gamblers Anonymous, um, particularly what the experience is like for the members of Gamblers Anonymous. Just before COVID hit, I had done a qualitative study just sort of exploring what that had been like. And then um, everyone in that study sort of said the attending the meetings is like really critical to their continued abstinence. And I thought about when COVID hit and obviously we started working from home everything, I thought about those people and wondered, you know, how they were coping or how Gamblers Anonymous had um, adapted. So I did a study via Zoom and via telephone, a qualitative study, asking people what it had been like to attend Gamblers Anonymous during COVID. So what did I find? Overall, the meetings uh, sort of offered lots of practical benefits, like being able to attend different meetings and therefore people were able to attend more frequently. But there was a really high dropout rate which people I spoke to found to be quite concerning because they were worried about their fellow members. Generally, the meetings did provide a lifeline and they did they were able to deliver some things that the face-to-face -face meetings did deliver, but it changed the group dynamic and it changed the individual interactions within the group, so it made people behave more individualistically. And um, one of the steps in a gambler's onus is to sort of uh, work for the group so it sort of changed the experience of it in that way. So an example of how someone might act more individualistically, lots of people said that they would join the meetings, uh, give their therapy, say what they wanted to say and then leave. Um, and they felt happy doing that. They said that why should they stay if they were bored, for an example. Whereas, you know, in the face-to-face -face meetings, there's social etiquette. You wouldn't just stand up and walk out. So people sort of took what they wanted from the meetings more, I think. Me as a researcher, what I took from doing research during COVID was I was really struck by the resilience of everyone that everyone very quickly could just adapt to what they were doing 
you know, it was almost without, I don't remember a time before Zoom, like it happened so quickly. And all of the institutions, you know, in terms of me as a researcher, the university responded really rapidly, but also interviewing people in Gambas Anonymous, which is a decentralised organisation, and seeing how quickly they adapted and how quickly the online meetings were put up. Yeah, it kind of, in a in a negative time, it, it kind of gave me some kind of positivity, I guess, because everyone seemed to bounce back within their boundaries. I would take away, it has really opened my eyes to, there are other ways of doing things. If you, for instance, you know, your uh, mobility or anything like that, or convenience, I feel like this study worked just as well as the ones I'd done face-to-face. Um, so it sort of opened up my eyes to being able to use other methods of doing it. Our final segment is with Rebecca Dwyer, also a PhD researcher based in the SUAB Research Group at Manchester Metropolitan University. Rebecca's research looks at the role of stress and alcohol in cognitive performance and brain activity in undergraduate students. And during the segment, we get an introduction to Rebecca's research area and also hear about how Rebecca adapted the study to be online. Okay, um, so brief introduction to my research. So it's looking at how stress and alcohol consumption can affect brain activity and cognitive performance in undergraduate students. Um, So up until not so long ago, it was thought that our brains are fully developed in childhood, but with the advancement of exciting technologies and brain imaging, we know now that humans have the longest period of brain development post-birth, with our brains still developing as we reach even almost a third decade of life. And this is particularly the case for the prefrontal cortex, which is the area of the brain I'm interested in my research. And this is still developing in our mid to late 20s. And it's really important for things such as decision making, planning, inhibition. Um, It's involved in roles in uh, emotional response and regulation. And these are all kind of things that we use every day and help us navigate in the the world. Um, And these are called executive functions. And we use them every single day without giving them much thought. So as amazing as this sounds, this kind of extended period of development kind of leans our brains vulnerable to the influences of external factors. And this can shape how our brains work either for better or for worse. So, for example, um, alcohol consumption, which is something I'm interested in in uh, my study, um, is often consumed to kind of reduce stress. But research shows that actually exposure to high levels of alcohol can also increase stress reactivity and therefore it may also be considered um, as a stressor itself. Uh, so yeah, I'm hoping that kind of my research brings awareness to the effects that these can have on uh, brain function um, and cognition and kind of help in trying to avoid these, uh, avoid these maladaptive coping mechanisms. I think this is particularly important in a student population who might be more likely to engage in this kind of increased level of alcohol consumption behaviours to kind of reduce the academic and financial presses, pressures of uh, university life. Yeah, so uh, COVID, uh, as I imagine, has had such a huge impact on research in general. Um, And this kind of um, hit during right smack bang in the middle of my PhD. Uh, So I had to make quite a few changes. So originally I was running some experiments in the lab at university and I got to use all this exciting and interesting equipment to measure brain activity and physiological responses. Um, and I was taking these measurements while participants were completing like neuropsychological tasks to measure executive functioning abilities. So all this really, you know, snazzy gear that I'd got trained up on, trained to use, trained to analyse. Unfortunately, COVID hit and I couldn't do the face-to-face testing anymore. And so it took me quite a few months to put together a study that would work. 
in the same similar kind of way but in an online format so I still had to get these tasks that I was using in the lab try and translate them to an online format so that I could keep them kind of consistent between the lab and the online version. Unfortunately I did end up losing those uh, those measures of the brain activity and the physiological data in the online study because it's quite difficult to measure that remotely um, but it was such a huge learning curve and there was points where I thought I, I don't know whether this is going to be possible I might have to change this whole kind of methodology completely but thankfully I managed to get it to work keep the methodology as kind of consistent as possible between the two studies so yeah that was a huge win I was really really happy that I finally managed to get that up and running and yeah, it allowed me to collect data while working from home, which I guess is kind of the best case scenario in this situation. So experiences conducting research during COVID, uh, I can only say COVID has been really difficult for us all. Um, and it was a real worry at first in terms of like, how am I going to continue this PhD? Am I still going to be able to submit on time? And ironically, at the same time, I was also really naive about how long this would actually impact us for. So it all kicked off in March. And I thought that I would be back collecting data in the lab in September. Like, I thought that was really going to happen, which seems completely ridiculous in hindsight. But as time went on, it became clearer that this wasn't going to be the case. So, you know, developing that online study seemed to be the best solution to, you know, continuing and progressing with the research and still allowing me to um, finish the PhD on time. But it's kind of brought a, a, a new set of kind of have learning curves with it as well like I mentioned before and there's there's pros and cons to to researching in in the traditional lab way and you know this new world that we've entered to research online a plus is that it's more flexible for myself and the participant you know we don't have to travel in to, to university to test on site we can just turn our laptops on you know it's a lot less demanding um, of both of us but then it comes with drawbacks such as connection issues which I'm sure we've all experienced um things like that and and working from home itself comes with its own challenges especially when your neighbors love doing DIY and start massive renovation projects it's it's tricky there's a lot of distractions to battle but I think it's just about trying to keep going making small little bits of progress every day and celebrating the small wins things like that that's everything from us today. A huge, huge thank you goes out to Jenny, Marie, Katie and Rebecca for sharing their research and experiences of conducting it during COVID. I hope you've enjoyed listening and remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please do share and subscribe. See you next time.